Well, you have arrived for week two of a two-week series called When Pigs Fly. How many of you believe in miracles? Come on, we serve a miracle-working God. I hope that your faith is stirred today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, the eighth chapter, page 1094, if that helps. Probably not. Listen, while you're turning there, uh, let, me, let me just give you a quick update on our Heart for the House project. Back uh, in May, we did a miracle offering for our renovation of our exterior of our building. Several of you have just given faithfully throughout uh, this year to the building fund. Uh, I want to thank you for doing that. Let me just give you an update. Our uh, contractor, several of his subcontractors, went out on uh, tornado uh, relief jobs because of all the weather-related things we've had, and so that pushed them way back. And if you've ever had uh, work done and had delays, then you can understand how that goes. So uh, all things are still in motion, but the reason that you don't see you know, the outside of the building changing yet is that they had some delays. So the plan at this point is the week of August 5th, you're going to start seeing uh, changes at our west entrance, the main entrance there will start to be updated, and then after that, our parking lot will be uh, resealed and striped, and then we'll see the, the marquee out at the road will be updated, and then in September is when we'll see all of the windows and the siding replaced on the exterior of the building, and the, the lights, and the spouting, and soffit, and all of that stuff will be updated. So that is coming. Just want to let you know, uh, it's still just moving forward right now, just some little delays through the summer months here, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be on track and ready to go with it. Did you find Mark chapter 8? All right. I want to just tell you today, as we uh, finish out this series here, one touch from Jesus can change a person's life. Has anybody in this room ever been touched by Jesus before? Okay, I'm going to try that one one more time. One touch from Jesus can change a person's life. Okay, okay. I'll make sure I'm in the right place. I just, I just, just had to check for a second. Listen, as we look at this story in Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at a unique miracle that Jesus performed. But before we get to that one, let me just build a case a little bit, if I can, this morning, for the reality that if Jesus touches your life, everything can change. And it almost feels to me like that's what Mark is trying to communicate Mark writes with a a fast pace, faster than any of the other gospel writers, and and there's an urgency to what he says, and things happen quickly, and he uses the word immediately a whole lot. Let me just give you a couple of the snapshots. In Mark chapter 1, verse 31, the Bible says that Peter's mother-in-law was sick. This is one of Jesus' disciples. His mother-in-law fell ill, and the Bible says immediately they told Jesus about her. Jesus goes... Uh, prays for her, touches her, raises her up. She is healed and immediately starts cooking them a meal. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Keep mom-in-law healthy. She's cooking. And then you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 40, and there's a man with leprosy that comes to Jesus. And, and, And Jesus actually gets a little bit irritated because the guy says to him, if you are willing, I know that you can heal me. And Jesus says, if I'm willing... I am willing, 
be healed. And immediately he heals the guy. It's like he's just saying to us, look, I am a healer. I am willing to heal. You don't have to ask today if it's God's will to heal. He said, I am willing. And then you get into Mark chapter 2, and this is the story we looked at last week out of another gospel, but same story. Four friends carry a paralyzed man on a mat to bring him to Jesus. They can't get in. They go up on the roof. They tear a hole through the roof. They lower the man down, and Jesus heals the man. He gets up. He takes his mat. He goes home. You get into chapter 5, and there's a woman with an issue of blood. She's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Finally, she presses her way through the crowd. She reaches out. She touches the hem of Jesus' garment. Immediately, power leaves him. She's healed. Jesus continues down the road to the home of Jairus, whose daughter, who was sick, is now dead. He goes into the house. He prays over her. Immediately, she's risen up. She's healed. Can I just say it one more time in case you missed the first round? One touch from Jesus can change your life. And Mark just lays this foundation of miracle working power as we move up towards Mark chapter 8. But can I say this? God doesn't always heal. Well, you don't have to say amen. It's true anyway. He doesn't. And I wish I knew why sometimes. But the reality is there are plenty of places in Scripture where we see not Not that God couldn't, that God could heal. He just, for some reason, he didn't. I'll give you a few of them. One of them is a man named Trophimus. He was one of Paul's ministry companions. This young Christian man from Ephesus went with Paul on his final missionary journey. And listen to these words out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. It says, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. So Paul says, not only was the guy sick, I left him. Like, he couldn't keep up. I got work to do. I just left him. Poor Trophimus. They just left him in my lead as hoping he's going to get better. I don't know why God didn't just heal him and let him go out and do the work, but he stayed there sick. I think about Timothy. Timothy was Paul's protege. He mentored him in the ministry. This young man was a pastor of that church there in Ephesus. And Paul wrote him a letter of encouragement. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, here's what Paul told him. He said, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, every alcoholic, if they can quote a verse, that's the verse they can quote, (laughs) right? Paul said, take a little wine for the stomach's sake. (laughs) He said it because they didn't have CVS or Rite Aid. They didn't have Mylanta or Pepto-Bismol. He said, what was he saying? Timothy's ill. He didn't say, Timothy, you ought to just pray harder. He said, no, this condition that that, that he's dealing with, take a little wine and, and, and try to get better because he has a frequent illness, even Paul himself. I mean, if there was ever a person that you would think, that God was going to heal. The, the greatest evangelist that's ever walked the face of the earth, Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, wrote over half the New Testament. Three different times he said, I cried out to God to heal me. I prayed. Three different seasons of, of fasting and, and asking God, Lord, remove this thorn from my flesh. Paul had a, a, a physical condition. His, his eyes were unhealthy. He had trouble seeing. He, he wrote with large letters when he wrote. 
And he prayed and he asked the Lord for healing, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, this was what the Lord told me. He answered and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So there's two things that we know about miracles. Number one, God's a miracle-working God. God can heal. But the second thing that we know and we have to acknowledge is that he doesn't always do it how we want. He doesn't always do it when we want. And that's one of the reasons I think this story in Mark chapter 8 is so unique. I want you to look at it with me, starting in verse 22. It says, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man, and they begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, and he led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Of all the miracles that Jesus did, of all the ones that are recorded in the Gospels, John says that if they were all written down, not all the volumes of the world could contain them. So we know they're not all listed, but of all the ones that are written about, this is the only miracle that we see in the Gospels where the person wasn't completely healed the first time. So if for no other reason than that, I feel like this story deserves a second look. I mean, this is unique, what's happening here. And one of the immediate lessons that we can take away, I think we can all grab this truth, is the fact that healing doesn't always happen instantaneously. See, which means sometimes God just does a miracle in a moment. And if God does that, we're going to give him praise. I mean, if somebody were to come down here and they were, you know, had a tumor and we prayed and that thing fell off, I mean, how many of you know we would shout? We give God all the glory for doing that because that's a miracle in the moment. But if somebody has a tumor and they go through radiation and, and it destroys that thing and it's gone, how many of you know we still ought to give God praise? Because he doesn't always do things instantaneously. He doesn't always do things in the very moment. And that's why, by the way, it's important that we never forget that not only do we pray by faith, but we also praise by faith. See, a lot of times what happens is people, they come into church, and they've got a need in their life, and, and they, they, they come to the altar, and, and they ask God, and, and, and then they get up from the altar, and they go, I, I, don't know, I don't know if anything's different. I guess we'll just wait and see. When in reality, what we ought to do is we ought to get up with confidence and say, God, thank you that you heard me when I prayed. Thank you for my healing. Thank you for my miracle. Why? I'm praying by faith, but I'm also praising by faith. Because I understand that God can do it in a moment, but he doesn't have to. Sometimes what happens is you walk away from the altar and God has initiated a process in your life. I want you to look with me for just a moment at, at the touch that this man received from God. 
See, it, this story is a good reminder that we, we don't always get the immediate results that we want. But it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't touch us. See, look at verse 22. It says they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man. He's a blind man. That means right now he can see nothing. And they begged Jesus to touch them. And then when you look down at verse 24, Jesus asked the man, do you see anything? And he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. In other words, I can't really make out their shape. But, but I can see something. It's, it's not exactly everything, but I can see something. Can I, can I just defend the first touch for a moment before we go on to the, the big miracle and, and the part that gets all of the, the emphasis? Can I just say today that it's significant that Jesus touched this man one time? Yeah, he couldn't see with 20-20 vision, but the man was blind. The man was blind, and Jesus touched his life. You say, well, why, why are you emphasizing that? Why does that matter? Because here's what we do a lot of times. We come with our expectation of what God should do, and then we don't value what God is doing because we haven't seen where we think we ought to be. I, I don't think I'm the only one that does that. We, we have this idea, and maybe it's based on something God said, probably based on something we've seen, of what God's going to do and where we're going to be and how things are supposed to work out. And then we call out to God and we say, God, would you do it? And then he comes and he touches us and we have an encounter with God and our life is changed. Yeah, but I kind of thought it would be different. Like, it's not, not everything I hoped it would be. It's not exactly the way I thought he was going to do it. And can I just challenge all of us today? Don't discredit the work that God has already done in your life. Don't sit there and go, well, I thought I'd be farther along than this by now. Well, I thought God would have moved a little faster. I thought things would all be worked out by this point. Listen, you've got a reason to celebrate. Jesus touched your life. Jesus touched this man. And he might not have been everything he was going to be, but praise God, he's not who he used to be. Anybody else in that camp say, I might not be everything God wants me to be, but I'm not who I used to be. We can just give God praise for the first touch. How about that? He's faithful, and he touched this man's life, and everything looked blurry, but can I just confess to you, I'd rather be blurry than blind. <laughs> How about you? I'm not a perfect Christian, but I'm saved. I don't get it all right, but I'm on the right path. I'd rather be blurry than blind. And Jesus touched this man's life. I want to just challenge you to grab a hold of that truth before we move any farther. Just recognize the fact that, that Jesus is working in my life. See, there are, there are people that they get frustrated because of the pace that God's working in somebody else's life. I've seen it so many times. You, know, you come to church and you pray for your loved one. You pray for your, your spouse or, or your, your, your children or your coworker, And, and you, just want, you just know if God would just save them, if they would just get to church, that he could change their life and it would be great. And then they finally come and they show up and everybody's singing and they're just standing there. And then the preacher starts preaching and they're, kind of watching, and they're scrolling. You don't know if they're on Facebook or if they're fact-checking him on Google, but you know, you're just going like, and you leave. You leave frustrated. 
going, come on, God. I mean, I did my part. I, th- I, thought, I thought if I could just get them to church, I just thought you were going to change their life and you were going to move. And you know what we're doing? We're discrediting the work that God's doing. Because a few weeks ago, that was a person that never would have said yes to come into church. That's a person that never would have joined you. And now they're sitting next to you on a Sunday morning. And they can't see 2020. They don't have it all figured out. But praise God, they're seeing with some blurry vision. Maybe for the first time in their life. Amen. Don't curse the process of what God wants to do. Just celebrate the step. God is doing a work. There's a first touch. Now, I think there's there's more beneath the surface of this. I think when you look at Mark's gospel holistically, I think it's significant that this story is, is right here. Because this is the moment in Jesus' ministry where he starts communicating to the disciples about the cross. This is the moment where he starts making it really clear to the disciples, I'm going to the cross. The Son of Man will be handed over. He'll be crucified. He'll die. Three days later, he'll rise again. I mean, he starts speaking very plainly and prophetically about where he is headed and where his ministry is going. It's in this same chapter, uh, verse 29, that he says, what about you? To his disciples, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Like, I I need to know. You've walked with me. You've heard the stories. You've seen the miracles. I need to know, who do you say that I am? And so I I believe that Jesus was actually confronting a lot more blindness than just this one man. I I think when you read the text, you discover there's a lot of blind people in this story. The first group that I see that's evident of their blindness is the Pharisees. The Pharisees are absolutely blind. If you back up to verse 11 and 12, it says they came to Jesus and they began to question him, to test him, and they asked him for a sign from heaven. Verse 12, he sighed deeply and he said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. See, the Pharisees, they knew all about God. They didn't know God. They didn't know that God was standing right in front of them in the flesh. They were were blind. And if I could just give a warning to us as the church today, the church that has 20 versions of the Bible that fit in our pocket, the church today that has access to the best preachers around the globe on YouTube, the, the generation that has multiple options for Christian radio and bookstores for distribution, can I just tell us today, there is a danger of being exposed to the gospel and never living it out. It's almost like when you get a vaccine. They give you a little bit of the virus. And in the same way, there's a lot of people that have become inoculated to the gospel. Because we've heard the word, we've heard the word, we've heard the word, but we're not doers of the word. And the Pharisees, they could quote it frontwards and backwards, but they didn't recognize the living word of God that was standing right in front of them. That's why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We got some expert menu readers that have never experienced, they've never tasted the goodness of God in their life. The Pharisees were blind. The next group that's blind is the disciples. The disciples themselves who were traveling with Jesus, they were blind. See, it's in this same chapter, Mark chapter 8, that we see Jesus feed the 4,000. And it's just two chapters earlier that he fed the 5,000. Two different miracles. 
He, he multiplied the bread and the fish more than once. And in chapter 6 when he did it, the Bible says the disciples wanted to send the people away because they were in a remote place and they didn't have anything to eat. And Jesus said, what do you think we ought to do? And they said, we ought to send the people away. And Jesus said, you feed them. See, Jesus was saying, you guys don't understand. The people are why I'm here. I'm here to meet their needs. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I came to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus said, you guys, this, this is why we're here. Feed them. And they didn't get it. In fact, chapter 6, verse 51, 52, it says they did not understand the miracle of the loaves. And so in chapter 8, he repeats the miracle. He feeds 4,000, and there they are again. They're in a remote place. There's a lot of people. And he asked the disciples, what do you think we ought to do about this? And they said, well, you ought to send these people away. They need to go get something to eat. And Jesus is, is frustrated with the blindness of his, fair, of his disciples. Look at verse 2. It says this in Mark 8, 2. Jesus said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days, and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come from a long distance. Jesus is getting frustrated with his disciples because they're missing it, their blindness. See, here's the problem. They, they believed that Jesus could meet all of their needs. They just didn't think he actually would. Again, this is, this is theory or, or practice, orthodoxy or orthopraxy. He's like, I, I know you, you said amen earlier, but I'm actually asking you to put this into practice. I'm actually asking you to, to believe this today. And they didn't believe that God would supply all of their needs. They were blind to God's provisions. And here's the danger of that. When you become blind to God's provision in your life, you also become blind to God's opportunities to provide through you. That's why one of the fruits on the day of Pentecost, one of the results of the infilling of the Holy Spirit was radical generosity. I mean, it's in that same chapter, Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of fire and, and fills the church. The whole house is full, and they begin to speak with new tongues. Now, I think that's significant for a lot of reasons, but just one of the reasons is that James said later that the tongue is the most ruly of all the beasts. That, that you, can, you can tame a wild beast, but you can't tame the tongue. And so I think it's just significant that when a person gets filled with the Spirit of God, that the most evident outward expression of that inward work is the fact that even the tongue becomes yielded to the Holy Spirit. And people begin to, began to pray, and they began to speak in languages that they hadn't Learn, And it's no surprise to me that on that same day, the Bible goes on to say in Acts chapter 2 that all of them shared all things in common, that none of them had need. Why? There was a spirit of liberality. There was generosity. It was extravagant. Why? Because they were fully surrendered to the Lord. See, a person that is fully surrendered to the Lord knows that it's all his, that it all comes from him, that we're totally dependent upon him for everything. And so we don't live life with a clenched fist because everything we have came from above. And so we, we live a life of generosity. Statistics show us time and time again that the more self-reliant you are, the less generous you become. 
Now, now I didn't say the more wealthy you are, the less generous, although for the most part, that's true. And the reason is because the more we have, we tend to be self-reliant. However, I've known lots of people that didn't have very much. They were very stingy with what they did have because they felt like, though I don't have much, it's all mine and it all came from me. And I got to hold on to it and make sure I keep it. And at the same time, I've known some people that are very wealthy, that recognize that everything that they have, all the the monetary blessings that they have, it all came from God. They're not self-reliant. They're appreciative. The fact that they're blessed. And so they live a generous life. But the more self-reliant you become, the less generous you are. And the disciples were at a place where they're, they're they're counting the bread. They're counting the fish. And they're not seeing the the goodness of God, they're blind. You know who else was blind in this story? The crowd, the people. The Bible goes on to tell us in Mark chapter eight, right after the miracle, right after he heals this blind man, Jesus is walking out of Bethsaida. He's going to the next town and he asks the disciples this question. He says, who do they say that I am? Who do the people, you know, these people that just saw me do these miracles, these people that I just fed, these people that have heard my preaching, who do they say that I am? In Mark chapter 8, verse 28, the disciples told him, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, they say, you're one of the prophets. There's a lot of people that are blind just like that crowd was because what they were doing is they were pursuing the blessings of the Lord, but they weren't pursuing the Lord. There's a difference. Some people, they show up when there's a crisis in their life because they need another blessing. Just like many in that day showed up because Jesus condemned them. He said, you just want another meal. You're just here for another miracle. You're just here for another sign. There's a difference in people that seek the Lord because he's the Lord and people that seek the Lord because of what they want from him. Can I just say to all of us today, if Jesus never does another thing for you, you ought to get up every Sunday morning and come to church and give him praise for the rest of your life. You ought to just give him praise because he's already done enough. And these people were blind because they weren't seeking God for who he was. They were seeking him for what he could give them. And then, of course, There's the blind man. And I want to spend the rest of our time talking about him. You know, I've heard it preached my whole life that God is a God of second chances. How many of you believe that? I mean, you you could just randomly pick a spot in your Bible, and you'll probably find a story where we see a demonstration of that truth. God is a God of second chances. I, I think about Jonah. I mean, Jonah was one of those guys that God called him into the ministry. He's supposed to go to Nineveh. He was supposed to preach. But what happened? He ran the other way, right? And God loved him so much that he put him in a storm, and he got him tossed overboard, and he had him swallowed by a fish and regurgitated up on the shore so that he could go back and preach again. Some of you, that's your story. God loved you enough to let you wake up in a pool of your own vomit, so you can realize you blew it, and he gave you another chance. Jonah got a second chance to preach. I think about Naomi. She loved the Lord, but her and her husband, they moved away from the people of God out of fear of famine. Her two sons got married, and before long, she found herself a widow, and both of her sons were dead too. 
But God blessed her with Ruth, a faithful daughter-in-law. And the two of them went back together to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And God began to supply for them and meet their needs and, and send them a kinsman redeemer. And they became a part of the lineage of King David and the Lord Jesus. Why? Because God's a God of second chances. I think about Eli. Eli was the priest in Israel. And you talk about an epic parenting fail. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were so wicked. They had discouraged the whole community from even showing up for worship because of how wicked they were. And they were in charge. But God was faithful, and he sent Eli another little boy named Samuel. And Eli got another chance to raise up a young man in the house of God who would become a spiritual leader for the nation. He's a God of second chances. If you need a second chance today, that's the God that we know. He's a God of second chances. I think about John Mark. John Mark was a young man that he wanted to travel with Paul. He wanted to be a part of the missionary team with Trophimus and all the other guys. And so he left on a short-term trip with Paul, and the Bible says he forsook Paul. He quit. I don't, I don't know if he got sick or homesick or, or if he just got preoccupied with other things, but he quit. Paul was so upset. Next time he went on a trip, John Mark said, I want to go. Paul said, I'm not taking that guy. He's not going with me. But Paul's friend Barnabas said, come on, give him a chance, Paul. Give him a chance. Paul said, no. Barnabas said, I I'll take him with me. And Paul said, you can take him with me. I'm going the other way. So Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark. The Bible says, years later, Paul was writing one of his letters, and he said, send John Mark with you. He's profitable to me for the ministry. Why? Because God's a God of second chances. This young man that, that the apostle Paul had written off, he later came to love and value. It's the same young man that wrote the gospel I'm preaching from today. He wrote the gospel of Mark. He needed a second chance. That's the God that we serve. I've heard all my life he's a God of second chances, and he is. But can I just declare to us today, he is also a God of a second touch. Not just a second chance when you've blown it and failed, but when you need God to move in your life, when you need a miracle, when you need God to do a fresh work, he is a God of a second touch. See, there are times in our life where you just need that. I don't know, I don't know where it comes from. I, I rebuke a spirit of shame in this house. I don't know why people feel intimidated to come to the altar. I'm going to tell you, I need God to touch my life every day. But I've seen it time and time again. There's this apprehension. There's this timidity or fear that comes over people. It's almost like we're admitting some fault by coming to the altar. And sometimes we are. But sometimes it's just the reality of recognizing that I am desperate for God to touch my life and move in my life again. And the church ought to be a place where, where we can say that out loudly. We can say that boldly and acknowledge, look, this is not a place where we claim to have figured it all out. This is a place where we all recognize how much we need God. When you look at this man's story, we see a person who needed God to not just touch him, but to touch him again. Let me give you a picture real quick. I, I love this picture. You don't have to turn there, but it's in... Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard the expression before that God is the potter and we are the clay. You've heard that before? Well, God gave 
Jeremiah a revelation, a visual picture. He spoke to him in an art studio. And this is where that picture of the potter and the clay comes from. Jeremiah 18, verse 3 through 6. It says, Jeremiah said, Then I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. In other words, it wasn't, it wasn't taking shape the way it was supposed to on the potter's wheel. It didn't look the way he intended it to look. But catch these next words. It says, so he made it again into another vessel. And it seemed good to the potter to make. It didn't turn out the way he wanted to, but he didn't throw it away. He didn't get frustrated. He didn't sling the clay against the wall. He, He just made it again. Imagine that. You can do that. You can just start over with the same lump of clay, and God spoke to the prophet in that moment while he watched that happening. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hands, O house of Israel. Isn't that good news? That God can can just come in and, and begin to reshape your life. He said, well, God already touched me once, and, and he healed me, and he, he, fi- he got me right. I got saved, or, or he fixed my marriage, or, or he gave me a second chance, but, but now here I am five years removed, and my life isn't quite shaping up the way I thought it was going to. Things aren't exactly as good as they were supposed to be. Well, God just comes right back in. He says, stay on the wheel, son. Get back on the wheel. Stay in my hands. I, I'm, not, I'm not finished. I'm willing to touch you again and to shape your life. See, because we're, we're a lot more like this blind man than I think we realize. All of us, we, we can grow blind. We can, we can become, see, I, I don't believe this guy was born blind. I think he became blind. And, and I say that because when Jesus touched him the first time and he said, can you see anything, he described trees. I feel like he had a point of reference. He said, I, I see people, but they look like trees. And then down in verse 25, it, speaking of the miracle, it says Jesus restored his sight. It didn't say he gave him sight that he'd never had. It says he restored it. So I believe that this guy lost his eyesight. I don't know if it was an accident or a disease, but somewhere along the line, he became blind. And it can happen to you and me. It can happen when circumstances get the best of us. It can happen when God disappoints us and things don't work out the way that we thought they would. It can happen just because of busyness and life and distractions the cares of the world that choke out the life of God in us. And if we're not careful, our faith can get out of focus and things that used to be clear, things that used to be very concrete, all of a sudden they become blurry. It can happen with our convictions, things that we know from the word of God to be true, and yet, and yet there, there's so much noise in the culture around us that, that all of a sudden I'm not so sure what I believe anymore. I, I'm, I'm not so certain about the truth of God's word on this. Why? Because our vision gets blurry. It's like that old song. We used, I grew up singing this song in the church. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You remember that song? Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what happens when we focus our eyes on Jesus. The things of this world grow 
dim. But you know, the opposite's true. If we get focused on the things of this world, all of a sudden the face of our Savior grows dim. And we can begin to have blurred vision. We can begin to not see things clearly. And I just want to say, if that's you today, if I'm describing your life and you feel like you're in a struggle to, to see God's truth or to see what God is doing or to see what God wants for you, look at this with me a little bit closer because God is a God of a second touch. The Bible says when Jesus came to this man that, yes, he was totally blind, but verse 23 says that Jesus came and took him by the hand. I love that it says that. Small detail that Mark included, but I love that. And I'm not saying this is right, but this is just the culture of the day. The reality is if there was a person that has a physical disability in that day, people just, they, they stay distant. They, they, they just walked around them. They didn't touch them. They didn't know what caused the disease. They didn't have uh, maybe enough medical information. And so best to just steer clear. So this was saying something for Jesus to see this man and to come and to take his hand. Jesus was outwardly demonstrating that I, I, I want to I associate with you. I, I, I want to connect with you. I, I want to understand what you're going through. I don't want you to feel like I'm over here and I'm untouchable. No, I'm touchable. I'm reaching out for you. And Jesus comes and he takes the man by the hand. And then he does something really unique. The Bible says he leads him outside of the city. He, He takes him by the hand and all these people are around. Everybody wants to see Jesus. Everybody wants to see a miracle. Here's a man who needs a miracle. And Jesus takes him by the hand and he leads him outside of the city. And he walks with him. And I, I can just imagine what this guy might be thinking in this moment. Where are you taking me? As he stumbles through the crowd, why are you doing it this way? I just heard you heal somebody over there. You just said, be healed. And they were healed. You touched that guy and he's healed. I mean, the Bible says in Mark 6, everyone was being healed. So no doubt that word was spreading. And this guy's faith is expecting a miracle. And instead of just healing him, Jesus takes him by the hand and and he leads him outside of the city. And can I just say to you that, that sometimes God wants to just get you away from the noise. God wants to get you away from the distraction. God wants to get you away from everything and everyone else that it, that it, that is vying for your attention because he wants your attention. He wants your focus in this moment. And I can just imagine this blind man as he's going outside of the city saying, Jesus, why why haven't you healed me yet? I mean, I I wanted you to do something quick and right now and on the spot. Why is it taking so long? Where are you taking me? Why are you pulling me away from everyone else? Can I just say to us today, God works in mysterious ways. See, some people, they feel feel blinded in the blur of not knowing God's will for their life. And the best thing that, that Jesus can do for you is to just take you by the hand and to invite you to walk with him. That's what he did for this man. He just said, look, you just need to walk with me a little bit. You just need to let me lead you a little bit. And he led him outside of the city. And can I just say that that's what 
That's what Jesus always does when you choose to follow him. He always leads you away from the crowd. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that following Jesus goes against the grain of our culture? It goes against the grain of others that don't want to follow him. He's never leading you downstream. He's always leading you against the current. He's always leading you in a different direction. And Jesus is, is bringing this man out to a place where he can minister to him personally and privately and individually. And then look at verse 23. It says in the latter part, once he had gotten him outside the city, he spit on the man's eyes and he put his hands on him. Now we're going to tackle the verse that everybody really wants to know about. Why in the world did Jesus spit on the man's eyes? Anybody besides me wondered? Anybody ready for a great revelation right here? I hope not, because I don't have one. I don't have a great revelation as to why Jesus spit in the man's face. Jesus, why did you do that? That's my qu- when I get to heaven, I don't know what your questions are. I just want to know, why did you spit in the guy's face? I mean, you can ask about creation or whatever question you're want. I'm going to ask, Jesus, why did you have to spit on the guy? But I will say this. God works in mysterious ways. I got some theories. I'll give you one. It was about two months ago, my wife, she spit in a little glass tube and put it in an envelope and mailed it off. And within a few weeks, they sent us back information and they told us where we came from and who our family was and why. Because our DNA was in the saliva. And so I don't know, maybe Jesus had to get a little bit of Jesus in that man because his DNA is in the saliva. And so he just had to, I, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe the guy, you know, was looking for healing in a medicine, and if you're blind, you don't know if it's spit or salve, so he just, like, rubbed it on him, and I don't know. But here's what we need to be careful of. We need to be careful that we don't take something unique that God does and and, and try to make that the pattern for how God has to do it. That's the thing that we got to be careful of because we can pray and we can ask God, and then God does something, and then we feel like that's the way he's always going to do it. Like that one time in the Old Testament when there was a plague and, and people were getting sick and, and God told Moses to take a serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up and he said, everybody that looks to the serpent will live. Well, you know what? That happened one time. They carried that serpent on a pole around for the next 400 years. But I wonder if they had worship service, they'd just stick it up front. Like, <laughs> not doing it that way. I can just imagine if this guy, after he got his sight, I just wonder if he might have started a church somewhere. And if this guy in Bethsaida had started a church, I can imagine the favorite song of that church would be, he touched me, oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Why? Because Jesus touched me, and I could see. But there was another guy named Bartimaeus who was blind. And he called out to Jesus, and he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus didn't touch him. He just called out to him, and he healed him. Now, I can just imagine if Bartimaeus went and started a church, they would have sang, Only believe, only believe, 
All things are possible. Only believe, because Jesus doesn't have to touch us. Just believe. There was another guy in John chapter 9. He was born blind, and Jesus healed him, but he didn't heal him by touching him. He didn't spit on him. He didn't talk to him. He said, go down to the water of Shalom and wash. So I bet after that guy got healed, if he would have started a church, they would have all got together on Sunday, and they would have sang, shall we gather at the river? Because that's where Jesus heals people, right? Can I tell you, God can work however God wants to work. He's God. The part that's up to us is the belief that we have faith to believe that God can do it. He's not limited by your experience. Somebody needs to hear that today. God is not limited by your experience. And let me go a step farther and say, your theology should not be limited by your personal experience. See, there's nowhere in this book that said Jesus isn't a healer. And there's nowhere that I can find that would argue that miracles stopped. But many people, because of their own lack of personal experience with the supernatural, have developed a theology that explains that. Listen, this book doesn't need your experience to validate it. It's true. God's word is true, and it's unchanging. So don't let your experience or lack of experience limit God's power to work in your life. God can do what he wants to do. The Bible says that this man, after Jesus touched him, he could see people, but they look like trees. Can I just say that that's what can happen to us when we grow blind, when we become distracted by the cares of this world or, or, or by difficult circumstances? What happens is we start to lose perspective on what matters most. It's like those disciples there with all the multitudes hungry, and Jesus said, what should we do? They said, send them away. They had lost focus. They forgot it's, it's about the people. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. It's about the people. But for us, when, when we lose focus, all of a sudden, we can get distracted and blurred in our vision to where the, the peripheral things become the main things, and the main things lose our attention. You can serve in a ministry, and, and while you're serving, while God's using you, you can be grumbling and complaining, oh, people are just using me. Like, well, you said God used me. You could, you could be serving in a ministry position and just be frustrated and, and not, e- not even see the, the lives and the people that you're impacting, the people that you're serving. It can happen in a marriage. You can get blinded, and and, and your vision becomes blurred to where you don't even see your spouse anymore. You don't see their needs. You don't see what's going on in their heart. All all you see is is the stack of bills. All you see is the conflict. All you see is just the stuff of life, and it blurs your vision. And you know what? People come, and they sit on my couch, and I say, what's going on? They say, he doesn't see me anymore. It can happen with your kids. All you see is the toys and hear the noise. And you start saying, I can't wait for school to start again. And you forget the gift that God has given you, that they are like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, that God has given you the opportunity to pull your children back and release them into a God-ordained destiny. But you don't see that. 
because your vision's blurred. And it can happen to any one of us. That's why I love verse 25 so much. Look at it with me. Once more. Can we all just say those two words together out loud? Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. They're going to begin to play that song that we sang earlier. I'm not enough unless you come. Will you meet me here again? See, the again recognizes that God's been faithful. Come on, has God showed up for anybody here this morning? He's faithful. But it also recognizes, God, I I need you to touch my life again. God, I need you to, to move again. You've been faithful in my past. Not for a minute was I forsaken. But God, I need you to touch me one more time. And can I just tell you what happens when he touches you? Same thing happens for us that happened for this man. The Bible says that he touched the man and he looked up. When Jesus moves into an atmosphere of faith to touch people, he always lifts you up. See, some people are afraid to come to God because they think like they're going to stick their head up and God's going to chop it off. You feel like it's spiritual whack-a-mole. Like, I can't go to church. I got too many problems. When I show up in there, God's going to strike me down with a mallet. Every time Jesus responds to faith, he wants to lift you up. The same way he lifted, he lifted him up so that he could see. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to lift you up. He wants to give you a perspective so that you can see things right because that's where your victory is. It's in him. The second thing that happens is when, when Jesus touches you, you begin to see things clearly. That's why, that's why I love the altar. That's why I love like sending our kids to youth camp. All this last week, our teenagers went to camp. And I'm going to promise you, their perspective is different today. Are they going to mess up? Are they going to struggle? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're still going to have their struggles. But they were changed. They see things differently now. They will never not be able to look back on that summer in 2019 where God marked their life. That's what can happen when Jesus touches you again. You see clearly. Changes your perspective. I want to invite you, if you'd stand with me all over this room, we're going to pray.